Amen. We're in our series, Heaven is Our Eternal Home, and tonight I want to focus on the body and soul. We're going to look at three different passages of Scripture before we're done tonight, and as we've done in the first two messages, I'm going to be sharing a lot of different Scripture references that you'll want to make note of, as we'll not have time to turn to them and read each one in length, but I will make reference as we go along to try to put things in context and give us some scriptural reference as we move through the study this evening. There was an article in the New York Times this week entitled, Where Do the Dead Go in Our Imaginations? The article explored how memories of a person, their unique characteristics, and even how they died answers this question, at least in part. The writer named uh, Anaconda Schofield uh, mentioned nothing from a spiritual or certainly from a Christian perspective other than what she called a lovely tradition that came from Ireland. She said if people are dead, you add an acknowledgement along with their name along the lines of may the Lord have mercy on their soul. There's also a fairly new Netflix docuseries called Surviving Death, based on a book named The Same by a journalist and self-proclaimed paranormal enthusiast named Leslie Keene. The series opens with near-death experiences and then quickly turns to the dark side, referencing mediums, signs from the dead, seeing dead people, and reincarnation. I definitely would not recommend it, as I think it is absolutely contrary to biblical truth and stems from evil and the darkness that it delves into quite quickly uh, is not a positive thing that we need to be filling our minds with. I reference these two things simply to say that interest in the afterlife is prominent, but misinformation and lies about the afterlife are also prominent. By way of your review, so far in our series, we've covered in Sermon 1, Eternity Past and the Heavens from Genesis chapter 1, and I asked and answered the questions, what was God doing before creation, what are the three heavens, and from where does God rule? In Sermon 2, the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, we based it on Psalm 16, and looked at the subjects of Sheol in the Old Testament, uh, immortality in the Old Testament, and conscious life after death in the Old Testament. For this third message, our focus is now on the body and soul. And I want to ask this question, how many aspects are there to people? Now, this is an important question because each individual obviously has a physical aspect, and this is the material part of our being. But then each individual has a spiritual aspect, and this is what we would refer to as the immaterial part of our being. And I want to preface the remainder of this message in the event that you've read in this area or you have a deeper understanding of it by clearly stating that I am not presenting any kind of philosophical dualism. 
And what I mean by that is uh, both Platonism and Gnosticism went in the direction when they essentially held that humans are spirit selves who find themselves trapped in material bodies. And what follows with that is that the material body is unimportant, insignificant, really doesn't matter. And in that way of thinking, the goal was for people to shed their bodily prison house, as they described it, enabling their souls to live in an unencumbered manner. Now further, both the Old Testament and the New Testament look at the human being holistically. In other words, the body and the soul cohere to a unified, integrated whole, which comprises the essence of who we are. So there is a unity of person, which includes physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, volitional, relational, social, and even more, which comprises the whole person. And God is concerned about the entirety of the person, not just one aspect. Now, as we ask this question and answer it, how many aspects or parts are there to people? There are two primary views that are related to this. And I want to introduce these and communicate my position and then provide more scriptural depth as to why I believe what I believe. The two views that are predominant are the trichotomist view and the dichotomist view. The view of the body is the same in both of these primary views. The difference in the views is found in how the soul and the spirit are understood. And the distinctions or the uniqueness of the soul and the spirit. So let's begin with the trichotomist view, meaning three parts. A person's soul includes the intellect, the emotions, and the will. Different elements of the soul can either serve God or be yielded to sin. In the trichotomist view, a person's spirit is thought to be a separate part of a person, distinct from the soul. And the common language of describing it is that the spirit is the part of a person that relates to God. The key to understanding this view is that it holds to three distinct aspects of a human being, body, soul, and spirit. Now, this view has been held throughout church history by various uh, people, but it's never been the dominant view. Now for the dichotomist view. Trichotomist means three parts. Dichotomist means two parts. The dichotomous view holds that the spirit is not a separate or distinct part, but is instead another term for soul, where the words are used interchangeably in Scripture to describe the immaterial part of a person. I believe this view agrees uh, that the Scripture uses the word spirit more frequently when referring to our relationship with God. But again, the word soul is used interchangeably as well. And I'll go more into this as I go along this evening. Louis Burkhoff, who lived from 1873 to 1957, 
was a Reformed theologian. His work, Reformed Dogmatics, was first published in 1932, and then later on they retitled it simply as Systematic Theology. In the book, he gives brief accounts of the history of particular doctrines, along with a brief summary of biblical evidence for that particular doctrine. And here's what he has to say in part. It is customary, especially in Christian circles, to conceive of man as consisting of two and only two distinct parts, namely body and soul. This view is technically called dichotomy. Alongside of it, however, made its appearance to the effect that human nature consists of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. It is designated by the term trichotomy. The tripartite conception of man originated, according to Burkhoff, in Greek philosophy. Now, here's what he has to say further. Trichotomists seek support in the fact that the Bible as they see it recognizes two constituent parts of human nature, in addition to the lower or material element, namely the soul and the spirit. But the fact that these terms are used with great frequency in Scripture does not warrant the conclusion that they designate component parts rather than different aspects of human nature. A careful study of Scripture clearly shows that it uses the words interchangeably. Both terms denote the higher or spiritual element in man, but contemplate it from different points of view. And then he says this finally. There are two passages of Scripture, however, that seem to conflict with the usual dichotomic representation of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The mention of spirit and soul, however, alongside of each other does not prove that they are two distinct substances. The prevailing representation of the nature of man in Scripture is dichotomic. Now, I believe that the terms soul and spirit, and this is me speaking, are used interchangeably. And they are not two totally separate entities. The two words demonstrate a distinction, however, within the second part or the spiritual aspect of a human being. The soul is the animate life and the seat of the sense, the desires, the affections, and the appetites. And indeed, the soul or the spirit is that aspect of us which connects with God. I believe that man is a dichotomy of the material and the immaterial, the substantial and the insubstantial. Now, there's no need particularly to be dogmatic about this. While the Bible speaks of the aspects of our humanity in various terms, it's not in as neat and tidy of a manner as some of us would like. Arguments can be made based on the two scripture passages that I referenced and others uh, for both. And I don't think I would call either heretical if in fact one were wrong. And whether the spirit and the soul are one or maintain some types of distinctives is not 100% clear. There's some mystery to it and I'll admit that. 
Tertullian wrote a treatise on the soul in the early church, and he too argued for a dichotomy. I think it's fair to say from my understanding that there is more representation of the dichotomy theologically, historically, than there was of the trichotomy. And that's the position that I'm going to take. So don't get hung up on that, although I'm going to outline it further. And we're going to think tonight essentially in two parts, the body and the soul. So let's think first about the human body. This is the physical aspect and the material part of our humanity. I've given you the scripture reference in Genesis chapter 1. I'll read verse 26 and then part of verse 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And then if you include with this Genesis 2 and verse 7, which I think is a restating of creation in a, in a way. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So what do we gain from this? God created people out of the most basic elements, being the dust of the ground. The fact that we were created out of the dust of the ground makes humanity unique in creation. To create everything else, God simply spoke and it was. Human life included the dust of the earth, which of course God also made out of nothing. Being created out of the dust of the ground indicates a certain lowliness and humility in that God did not use gold, he used dust, a very basic substance. Genesis 3 and verse 19 noted man's dependence on God and also the fragile nature of our humanity, where he said, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Being created out of the dust of the ground indicates that God formed man, meaning to mold or to shape or to form. And that's why we can rightly say God is the potter and we are the clay. Matthew Henry said his material part is dust from the soil out of which he is formed as the potter molds the vessels out of the clay. God could have created people any way that he wanted but yet he chose to use, in part, natural material. God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of man, and he became a living being. The word for breath in Hebrew is ruach. It's the same word for spirit, in that God created man by putting his breath or his spirit in him. King James Version is translated, man became a living soul. Now this raises another question. Is man a soul or does man have a soul? Man is a soul in the sense of the essence of his being. But the soul is contained in the body 
while the body is alive on the earth. God breathed his own breath into the nostrils of Adam. And the breath of God being breathed into the nostrils of Adam made man distinguished from all other creatures. God alone created people. And what this says to us is that people did not evolve under evolutionary influences of random forces, but rather the Lord God formed man. We also learn that God created man in his image and likeness. Having the image and likeness of God means that we were made to resemble God. God the Father is a spirit, and he exists without a body. Of course, he became incarnate in the Son when Jesus Christ was manifested on the earth, the full revelation of God. But when we speak of the image of God or the imago Dei in creation, it's referring to the immaterial part of people primarily. It's referring to the part that sets us apart from the animal world and enables us to communicate with God, our maker. So let's think about it in terms of its original intent. In its original intent, the image of God included the likeness to God mentally, morally, and socially or relationally. So we can say that we are rational beings and can reason and choose with both intellect and freedom. Or to say it another way, any time that a human being uses reason or makes a choice or acts creatively, we are demonstrating the fact that we are not animals. Instead, we have been created in the image of God. Now, obviously, the fall of man when sin entered the world did not destroy uh, or remove the image of God, but it certainly had profound consequences, and it disfigured it. And that's what causes us to be in need of redemption and restoration with God. And then, of course, the New Testament also points out that all people are made in the likeness of God. So our belief would be that the human body, because it's been created by God, and because the breath of life has been breathed into it, and because we've been made in the image and the likeness of God, therefore should be valued and protected. And this takes me to the other scripture that I referenced at the outset tonight in Psalm 139. Now begin reading in verse 13. The psalmist says, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless and all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Now track carefully here because God has made us. He's given us life. And this is why we would hold such a position that human life should be valued and protected from natural conception to natural conclusion. And anything less than that is a significant evil. It is wickedness and it is an affront 
to the careful, creative act of God in bringing life into being. And then what follows is that the human body should be used to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, something that might stand out here in our discussion of the body is an understanding of the flesh in the New Testament. There are numerous references to the flesh in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 5, for example, speaks of the works of the flesh and then goes on to outline a number of sins. The works of the flesh represent sin, things that are contrary to God's design, that track with sinful tendencies. And until we are in the presence of God and our redemption is complete, we will struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, what happens to the human body at death? Well, very simply, the human body remains on the earth. The soul of believers, which I'll get to in a little bit more in depth in a moment, goes to be with God immediately after death, while the physical body remains on the earth awaiting the resurrection. The soul of unbelievers goes to the place of suffering, awaiting the final resurrection and judgment to follow. At the resurrection, the physical body will be literally raised and reunited with the soul. Now, let me just make a parentheses or parenthetical statement here as it relates to the value of the body and the soul and God viewing us holistically. If, in fact, we were to track with any type of philosophical dualism that says that the body doesn't matter, it's only the soul or the spirit that matters, then why would there be a resurrection? Why would there be a new body? Why would Jesus Christ have been raised from the dead as he was? This speaks, at least in part, to the value that God places on his creation holistically as both body and soul. Now, over the years, I have presided over 200 and some funerals in 25 some years of ministry. I've had the incredible privilege of being in the room when many people left this life and went on to the next. And I can tell you emphatically that at the moment of death, life very obviously leaves the body while the body remains and awaits the final resurrection. The human body cannot live without the soul. The human soul lives on apart from the body, awaiting that final resurrection. That's the human body. Now for the second part, the human soul. The human soul is the spiritual aspect that I've already referred to as the immaterial part of our being. The human soul is the essence of our being. It is our vital existence. I think that the body is central to personhood, and I think the soul is central to personhood. 
Now, the scripture highlights the unity of the human being, as I've already talked about here, in that each individual is a unified body and soul living and acting together. That unity between the body and the soul and every action that we take in this life is a part of that holistic understanding. But the two words demonstrate a distinction within the second part of being the spiritual part of a human being. The soul being that animate part that is the seat of the sense, the desires, the affections, and the part of us that connects with God. Now, what are we to make of the soul and spirit distinction in the scripture? I led off tonight to kind of compartmentalize these, and I did it rather simplistically, but I hope in a way that was clear. But let's look a little bit further now into how we should view these two words that are used, soul and spirit. The biblical word for soul in Hebrew is nephesh, the Greek word being suke. The biblical word for spirit, as I've already noted in the Hebrew, is ruach, and in the Greek, it's pneuma. At times in the scripture, they are used very clearly interchangeably. Let me give you some examples. Consider Mary's words in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The words of Jesus in John chapter 12 and verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And then in the very next chapters, Jesus says that he was troubled in the spirit. John 13 and verse 21. Then uh, people who have gone to heaven or hell are referred to as spirits. Hebrews 12 and verse 23 says, the spirits of just men made perfect. And then First Peter chapter 3 and verse 19 refers to the spirits in prison or souls. And then in Revelation 6 and verse 9, the souls of those who had been slain But then when you get over to chapter 20 and verse 4, it refers to the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony. At death, the Bible says either the soul departs or the spirit departs. In the Old Testament, it's said of Rachel in Genesis 35 and verse 18, her soul was departing. Isaiah predicted the servant of the Lord would pour out his soul unto death. Isaiah 53 and verse 12. In the New Testament, God told the rich fool, this night your soul is required of you. Luke chapter 12 and verse 20. And then when Jesus was dying, the scripture says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19 and verse 30. So humans are said to be either body and soul or likewise body and spirit. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 28, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather we should fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to deliver an erring brother to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The scripture indicates that 
The soul is capable of sin, but it also states it in such a way that it says the spirit is capable of sin. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20 says, the soul who sins shall die. And then Paul encouraged the Corinthians to cleanse themselves from every defilement of body and spirit in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. So I believe it is permissible to generally speak of the soul as that animate life, which again contains the seat of our senses, our desires, our affections, and our appetites. So when we speak of the soul or the spirit, and I'm using these interchangeably now, that is the part of us that needs to be saved, but along with that, our bodies are redeemed as well and restored and renewed in the final resurrection. Psalm 35 and verse 3 says, my soul needs salvation. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11 says, fleshly lust wage war against the soul. And then 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1 again speaks of the defilement of body and spirit. So I think the soul and the spirit are different aspects describing one. Now you ask, what about passages which seem to distinguish more between the soul and the spirit? Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find other scriptures that make even more distinctions. Luke 10 and verse 27, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So should we then conclude from Luke chapter 10 and verse 27, for example, that we consist of four distinct elements. Would we then say that we are heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we're all compartmentalized? Or is this simply describing, again, holistically, who we are as creations of God? What about Hebrews 4 and verse 12? For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as separation of, watch this, soul and spirit. And then he uses the phrase joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, here's the point I want to make on this. In this verse, the writer uses soul and spirit as synonyms, I believe, just as he uses joints and marrow as synonyms for the flesh. The writer uses synonyms to describe the parts of people, and Hebrews indicates that the Word of God can separate the immaterial and the material, that there's no aspect of the human being that is out of the reach of God's hand. And that brings me to this point. The human body is mortal and eventually dies and decays. At death, it goes to the grave awaiting the final resurrection. The soul is immortal. Or to state it this way, every person you have ever met 
is a soul living in a body, and that soul will last forever. The spiritual aspect of people, once it comes into being, will last forever. The human soul, the spirit, is that part of a person which is eternal and seamlessly lives on without interruption once it comes into being by the creative life of God. The soul or the spirit that accepts God's gift of salvation and repents and believes is redeemed in Jesus and will spend eternity with God. That's the hope of the gospel. And on a future day of judgment, the soul of believers will be re-embodied on the day of resurrection and will live eternally as one. Now, we're going to get to this later on when we think about what's the resurrection body like. Will we retain the essence of who we are? When I get to heaven, for example, will I just know you because I have perfect knowledge Or will I know you because I recognize you because I knew you before? And I think if we look at Jesus as the example, they certainly knew who he was. And once they were uh, thinking about the fact that he could be alive, they certainly recognized him. We've looked at the examples of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yes, that was out of due time, meaning that the disciples had not been present with them. There were certainly no pictures that they could refer back to and say, hey, that's, that's Moses, that's Elijah. You know, they, they didn't know that. So they had perfect knowledge in that sense. So I think it's possible, that, and I'll get to this more in depth later on, that we'll both have perfect knowledge so that when we are in heaven, we'll recognize the Apostle Paul or we'll recognize other people who maybe weren't as prominent or famous, but they're in heaven with the Lord, and we'll recognize the people that we knew before because they were in our sphere of influence in our life, our family, or whatever. And then the flip side of this is that the soul, the spirit that rejects God's gift of salvation will be condemned to pay the penalty for their sin eternally in the place of suffering. On the future day of judgment, the souls of unbelievers will also be re-embodied, and they too will live eternally. Now, you want to know how valuable we are? Well, I already told you we were created in the image of God. I told you that we had the, the very breath of God breathed into humanity to give man life. But if you want to know our value, our value is reflected in the price that Jesus Christ was willing to pay for our redemption. The Son of God was willing to endure the full wrath of God. He was willing to bear the penalty for our sins, to be crucified and buried and raised for our redemption. And that speaks to us about the value that human beings have in the sight of God. Now, this should motivate us uh, for a couple of very important points of application. And I'm going to close this evening with these two main points. First of all, it should motivate us toward holy lives. That if, in fact, my body and my soul are valuable to God, 
And if, in fact, I am supposed to honor him and glorify him with my entire being, then what follows with that is that I, as a redeemed person, should have a desire to grow to be like Jesus. That there should be a passion in our lives for the likeness of Jesus Christ in how we live, the decisions we make, the values that we hold, the things that we support, and the direction and trajectory that our lives go in. All of that should be consistent with the holiness of God. And at any point, if there is a departure from the Word of God, the character of God, or the Son of God, we have to look at it and see that it's we who have departed. It's not God who has been inconsistent or unclear about how he has revealed himself. So it ought to stir us up and encourage us on toward Christ-like living. And then secondly, it should give us both a love for and a burden for other people. Because God loves people created in his image. And that love for other people means that we interact with other people with a measure of love and respect uh, without having to qualify that statement. We're, we're going to be loving and respectful and kind toward other people, even when we're speaking or sharing the truth. And we should care about the destiny of their souls. It should stir us with a greater desire toward sharing how God has changed our lives in Christ because we know that every person that we encounter has a date, an appointment with God. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And what we should be asking ourselves is, does this person that I know have the Lord in their lives? Are they prepared for eternal matters? And listen, I want to tell you, although there is a lot of interest in the afterlife, there's a lot of interest in darkness and the spirit world and everything that goes along with that, there is increasingly a disinterest in what lies beyond this world. Because so many have bought into the system that this is a closed world. You got to live it up while you're here because someday you're going to die and it's just going to be over with. And if they can hold to such a thought and convince themselves that such a thing is true, they don't have to have any concerns about a God who is eternal or powerful or holy. They don't have to worry about any sense of accountability. They can live as they please because it's all going to end at some point. But here's the deal. It's not all going to end. It's going to continue on. The question is, is it going to continue on as a person who has received the grace of God in Christ? Or is it going to continue on under the judgment of God that the Bible speaks of? So my purpose this evening in closing in studying and, and really outlining the, the body and the soul is to give you an understanding of how God sees these things holistically in the Scripture 
the value that God has placed on us in creating us and redeeming us and the purpose that he now has for us. And so that we can set the stage when we finally get to those details about what heaven is going to look like in its final form, what the scripture teaches, that we can understand what happens when it's all over. Because you understand, for every one of us, eventually, it's all going to be over. It's either going to be over when Jesus returns, or it's going to be over when our lives on this earth are done. And it'd be a sad thing for any of us not to be prepared and not to have the confidence and the hope that we can have in the Scripture if we inform ourselves about these matters so that we're not flying blind. Yes, there's still mystery to it. Yes, there's still much that we don't know and we will not know until we're in the presence of God. But there are volumes of information here, so many references about what we can't expect, and we ought to be well-educated about it. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.